You guys have a good Thanksgiving? Now, you ready for Christmas? No. <laughs> well, we're continuing in the book of Philippians. We're chapter 2, and this is one of my favorite chapters, actually, in all of Scripture. It is, I think, one of the most practical and as far as explaining what is necessary for us to live lives like Jesus. And as we look at this passage, I, I pray, you know, you can almost just read this passage and it's a Bible study all by itself. And, and I want to try and get through the whole chapter because I, I, I don't want to belabor any one specific point, but I think what Paul does here in chapter 2 is brings about what it is, the heart and mind of Jesus, explains it in Jesus, and then he explains it also in himself, in Timothy, and Epaphroditus, this attitude, this imitation of Christ's humility that we're all to try and live and try and live by example. And so let's pray once again and just ask the Lord to help us to grab hold of these words, to live them, and to allow them to be seen within us. Father, we, we ask for your help, God. Lord, you have given us such a treasure in this chapter, and we need your Spirit's illumination and quickening to make it a reality within our lives. Father, it's not enough to know what these things say. Lord, we have to put them into practice. And God, to do this, it is going to take a strength greater than our own. It's going to take your working within us. And, and so we're here begging you, God. Make this a reality within our lives. We're here beseeching you, Father. Help us so that what we read can be what we live. And we ask for your help. In Jesus' name, amen. Verses 1 and 2, let's start there. Actually, 1 through 4, let's read this whole section. It says, if you have any encouragement... From being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. As Paul starts off, he, he gives us this incredible just uh, passage of, of understanding. And he tells us, first of all, that if, if you have any encouragement from being united in Christ, any comfort from his love any fellowship of the Spirit, if any tenderness of compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. And he's really tying this back to chapter 1, verse 27, where he says, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, contending as one man for the faith of the gospel. This is what he is leading us to. Remember we talked last time about the idea of courage, about being encouraged, and how the idea of spirit and being filled with the spirit and being encouraged is very similar, that it is the spirit that gives you the power to move forward and do the things that you need to do, that it's not that you have this ability all by yourself, it's that God breathes this into us. We talked about what it means to get the wind knocked out of you when you lose your spirit. It's the idea of your strength being gone and that we need to be filled with God's spirit and strengthened. And so he's wanting us to move forward in this encouragement that we are united with Christ, that we are a part of something that is bigger than us that we are a part of a relationship that is connected to Christ himself, and, and we should be encouraged because of this, and we should show signs of this in how we live our lives. 
And so if we've been united with Christ, then we should also have the comfort of his love. If that comfort of his love is a part of our lives, then it is going to produce these things, the fellowship, the koinonia, the, the communion of his spirit. And the, all, the whole idea here of what he's trying to do is this is what we need to live a life that honors God. These are the characteristics that we want to have within us. It, this, one way to read this, another translation or actually a paraphrase of these first two verses is, if there is any divine strength or support available to those who are in Christ Jesus as you are and that is there, if there is any consolation or incentive which springs from your love, and there is, if participation in the Holy Spirit means anything, and it does, if there be in you any affectionate tenderness, and there is, you see, then fill my cup with gladness to overflowing. In other words, all these things that I see in you, Paul is saying to that church in Philippi, these things make me joyful because I see them in you and I want this to overflow. I want you to be like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Now, having the same mind does not mean that you are uniformity and in judgment. In other words, it doesn't mean that you all think the same way or have the exact same judgment, but you have a moral unity. The character of Christ belongs to you. That's what it means to be of the same mind. What mind is he talking about? To have this same love, like-minded, the same love. It's the mind of Christ. It is the love that God has given us in Jesus. It's being in one spirit and purpose. We are moving in the spirit of God just as Jesus has done. And so this is really having a goal, having the character and the goal of Christ in mind. And so if we belong to Jesus, then the goal that we have is similar. It is to honor God. It is to live lives that bring glory to God just as Jesus did. And we can be come frightened when you think, well, you have to be like Jesus. I don't know about you, but I, I kind of shrink back at that. Like, well, you know, I'm not quite there yet. I've got a few things still to, to accomplish in my life to be like Jesus. But really, that is our goal, and we are united in purpose, and that is our mindset. To be like Jesus. And we need one another. We need to be united in this and have the same joy, love, purpose. The same spirit unites us. He empowers us. He gives us direction. And he purposes us to move forward in this direction. And so he starts off, first of all, kind of taking up where he is. He's encouraged by the Philippian church and he sees these things in them. And so he concludes he wants his joy to be full as they continue in this way. Which brings us to, to verse 3 and 4, which to me is the crux of this passage, of this chapter. It is the heart, really, of this book. When he says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. This passage challenges my life daily. Do nothing out of selfish ambition. What does he mean by selfish ambition? It means do, don't do anything for yourself, for your selfish motive. Now, what he's not saying here is that you shouldn't be ambitious, but what he is saying is that your ambition should be other than or about others than yourself. In other words, your ambition isn't about to exalt yourself or vain conceit, vanity. That your ambition, your goal, your, your purposes aren't about exalting yourself. In fact, nothing that you do should be about exalting yourself. Now, the reason this challenges me is because just about everything I do is about myself. It's about how can I 
look good? How can I be thought of as well? How is this going to be an advantage for me? That's just how we are. I just threw you into this, by the way, because I felt all alone just saying this. But I know this about our nature. This is a part of who we are, this, this tendency to, to seek our own, to be self-motivated and to be vain. And you guys have heard the illustration, you know, if you take a picture, if I were to take a picture of all of you and show it to you, the first person you'd look for is yourself. Why? Because I want to know what I look like. I want to see who I am. I want, I want it's all about me. And really, pride is at the root of our problems. And if we do not deal with the pride issue, then we will have a problem. It is pride that made the devil a devil, and it is pride that will make devils out of us all if we don't deal with it. And here Paul is saying nothing should be done with this selfish ambition. It is this selflessness that we see in Jesus that we are to imitate. Nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourself. Humility is the opposite of the sense of entitlement. Humility isn't thinking little of yourself. It's just not thinking of yourself. And humility is what we need in our lives if we are going to not be filled with selfish ambition. Humility is the idea of not thinking, you owe me, I'm entitled to this. And this happens in so much of our areas of life. You owe me a certain look, you owe me a certain respect. If you see me, I expect you to say hello and treat me a certain way. If I am driving, I expect you to acknowledge my right of way in the passage. If I go and to go to the restaurant, I expect you to serve me and to get my coffee on time. I expect you to keep my cup full. I expect you to be here when I want. I expect you. And let's face it, we live in an entitlement kind of world where we expect people to take care of us because we are paying for it, because we deserve it, because of our status, because of our position. I expect you to cater to me. And Paul is saying we shouldn't have this kind of attitude, that humility is something that doesn't have an attitude of you owe me, but of how can I serve you. And, and this attitude of humility, consider others better than yourselves. The idea of, of better means, again, I am here to serve you. Now, who are you struggling with? Who is a person that you have a hard time considering better than yourself? Is it your boss? Is it your husband, your wife, your kids? Friends, neighbors? Someone that really irks you? You see, it just says others. It doesn't say others that are better than you. It just says consider others better than you. You have to have this attitude, think of other people as more important than yourself. And we don't tend to do that. Oh, some people we might think are better than ourselves. And it depends in different areas. Oh, that's a better musician. That's a, a better, you know, that person is better at their job or that person is better in status. We, we have these elevations, I'm better at math or they're better in reading. But that's not what it's talking about. It's talking about serving someone as if they deserve it. And it just says others. This scripture is something that I think of every time I go into a counseling appointment. When I'm going to sit before some people who are coming before me, this is the scripture that I always go over and rehearse in my mind that in humility I will think of others as better than myself. So that when someone comes up to me and I'm dealing with a, married, a married, married couple and I find out that the husband is being abusive to the wife 
and everything inside of me wants to put him down and to get on his case because I don't like that. I have to think of that person as how can I serve them and think of them as better than myself. When I see a situation where someone is mistreating the other person or someone is having a struggle in an area that I don't have a struggle in and I see that person and my tendency is to say, what are you doing? How can you be so weak in this area? I have to think of myself, how can I recognize that this person is more important and I have to serve them so I can help lift them up instead of put them down? You see, because wherever you are, Jesus did this for you. He thought of you and he thought of me as more important than himself. And that is the attitude he had towards us when he went to the cross, as he's going to talk about here. How is it that we can have a different attitude towards people? Who do we think we are? But if I don't have this in my mind, I become very judgmental. And again, it goes to the root of pride. And he's saying nothing should be done out of selfish ambition or thinking too high of yourself, but in humility, which is a lowness of mind, lowliness of mind, the King James says, consider others better, more important than yourself. That's a lifetime right there, just trying to live that verse. That is something that would occupy us if we were to just focus on that and see where we are. And it forces us to then conduct ourselves differently. You know, if my kids come home and they want to talk to me, but I'm tired. Sometimes my daughter, she comes home and she's just a buzz. And she's got a million things to say. And it's like, oh, you know, I'm tired. I don't want to hear a million things right now. I want to watch the game. Humility. Think of her more important than yourself. When I get that phone call, and I see it, and it comes up, and it's like, oh, it's them. It's, it's like the problem child, you know? It's like every time I talk to this person, it's a problem. And humility of mind, think of them more important than yourself. There was a situation I was going through when we went to New York. And I had a friend who was going through a serious struggle. And I'm on vacation. I'm on vacation. And I get a text message. And I can ignore it. Or I can say this person is more important than me and my vacation and my relaxing and my time. But I deserve it. I haven't had a vacation. I need this. You know what? This is what Jesus did for you but we think we have a right. We think, well, it's only so many hours, so many months, and then I, I deserve my week of vacation. I deserve this time. I, I can cut it off here. How do you stop? How do you not answer back and give of yourself to someone who's in need if they're more important than you? How do you? I don't know how. I can justify it. I can justify, well, I deserve my time. I work hard. I, you don't know all the time. And I can, I can esteem myself. I can basically lift up all these things and be deceived. Thinking I'm more important than I really am. And you see, it's this attitude that will help you to answer the phone call, answer the text message, instead of doing what you want, instead of giving of yourself as you need to. It's this attitude that moves you to a place to be more like Jesus, which is verse 4. 
Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Now, the word interests is not there in the original. It's just each of you should look not to your own. We, we've used the word interest because we have to kind of encapsulate what's going on. Okay, so you can fill in the blank, look not to your own finances, your own affairs, your own property, your own health, your own happiness. Look towards all these things. Don't just look for your own satisfaction, but look for the others as well. And you see, Paul in Romans 1.14 says, I am a debtor both to Greeks and to non-Greeks, both to the wise and the fools. I owe everybody. How do you get to a place where you think of yourself as owing everybody? How can you get to this place where you say of yourself, I owe you, I owe you, I owe you. How do you get to that place? Well, the only way I know of how to get to that place is when you are struck by the fact that Jesus has done everything for me. When he owed me nothing, when I was yet a sinner, he died for me. When you get struck by the fact that God became a man, humbled himself and died for you, when that grabs your heart and grabs your life, then you can't say, I don't owe anybody because God has given everything for me. How can I not give how do I not owe? How am I not a debtor when the God of all creation has become indebted to me? It challenges us. It shakes us. Now, as Jesus gave of himself, he was not a fool. He didn't entrust himself to men because he knew what was in the heart of man. It doesn't mean you have to do everything everyone asks of you, but in humility of mind, you think of others as more important. In other words, I'm not going to belittle you, I'm not going to put you down, and I'm going to do what is in your interest or what I feel God is leading to do in the best interest of you. And so when you're counseling someone, you give advice that is going to be help, helpful to them. When someone asks of you, you, you see the situation. And how do you know what is the right situation? How do you know what is the right thing to do? There is nothing in Scripture that tells us you should give your money to this person. There is nothing in Scripture that tells you how to do everything, how to play with your kids, how much time is enough time. There is nothing in Scripture that says you should read your Bible one hour a day or 20 minutes a day or you should pray for a half hour a day. There is nothing that gives us those kinds of guidelines. How do you know what to do? You have to have a mindset of Christ, of humility, of understanding that I am indebted to God and I am serving God and I have to have my ears tuned to him and I have to listen to him so that he can speak to me so I can walk in the ways that he wants me to walk because this is a relationship that I have with him that moves me, that speaks to me, that guides me. I'm indebted to him. And we have to have this mindset if we are going to move in the wisdom of God. Because wisdom means thinking about the things that God did and the way that Christ did it. And to act on those things as the Spirit would move us. To take the things that God gives us information-wise and then put them into practice. That's wisdom. And how do you do that in every situation? Every situation is different. I can have two kids that can ask me for money, and I might say yes to one and might say no to the other. Why? That's not fair. You don't know my kids. If I say yes to this one, it could cause problems. If I say yes to this one, it could be a good thing. How do I know? I know my kids. Wisdom doesn't just give you, okay, this is the blank answer for everything. It's involved. You have to understand the situation. How do you understand the situation? Well, in humility, you think of others as more important than yourself. And you don't look at just your own interests, but the interests of others. That's the attitude of Christ. That's what we need. And that's what we need to do. I mean, this is what Jesus said, to love your neighbor as you love yourself. This is the attitude that Christ had. This is the attitude that Christ displayed. And what Paul does now is he goes on to, to illustrate what he's just told us in verses 3 and 4. 
he tells us in verse 5, your attitude should be the same as that of Jesus Christ or Christ Jesus. Okay, let's just stop there. Your attitude should be the same of Christ Jesus. Does that strike anyone? Because this should just floor you. You need to have the attitude. And, and really what he's saying is, think this in yourself. When you think, have the attitude of Christ. If you're going to have an attitude, let it be that of Jesus. Anyone fail in having that attitude today? <laughs> why, why did we fail? Well, because we weren't humble because we were seeking selfish ambition, we were worried about ourselves, we were thinking we are owed something. We didn't take interests of others, we were concerned about our own interests. That, that's why we didn't do verses three and four. See, to have the attitude of Christ, you have to put into practice verses three and four, because that is the attitude of Christ. And so your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. That means if your attitude isn't, something's wrong which means a lot of times something is wrong. Because a lot of times my attitude is not that of Christ Jesus. But what was the attitude of Christ Jesus? Who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped for. Wow. Being in very nature God. In, in Colossians 2.9 it says that in him, Jesus, the fullness of the Godhead dwelt bodily. Jesus was God stamped in human flesh. He had the nature of God. And so, even though he had the nature of God, he didn't consider the equality with God something that he had to grasp after. It wasn't something he flaunted. Hey, don't you know who I am? I'm God. You better listen to me. But you see, that's something that we, again, struggle with. Don't you know who I am? I should have respect. The customer is always right. I mean, we all have these kinds of things that kind of motivate us how we're supposed to think. Jesus was God and he didn't flaunt it. He didn't use it. He didn't say, hey, don't you recognize who I am? He didn't think it was something that he had to try and hold on and prove. What do we have to try and prove? What are we trying to prove? Because we all like people to think well of us. If I'm being honest here, and I should be, <laughs> being a pastor of sorts really tends to, to lead to a bad attitude. Hey, I'm the pastor. I shouldn't have to do such and such. Why not? Because I'm the pastor. Where, where do we get that attitude? Jesus was God, and he didn't think he had anything to grasp hold of. He didn't think he had this position he had to hold on to. Where do we think pastor is? If Jesus, being God, didn't try and grasp hold of this equality, why would we want to elevate ourselves? It says in verse 7, but he made himself nothing. taking on the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. You guys, this is the gospel. God became nothing and became your servant. And if that can grab hold of us, then in humility of mind, we can lift others as more important than ourselves. We become debtors because we see that God became nothing and became our servant. He became like us. He gave of himself for us. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9, it says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, and though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. He gave of himself that we could become rich. So we can become rich towards God. He, he became nothing. That's what it's telling us here. He became nothing. 
taking on the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. In verse 8 it says, And being found in appearance as a man, what did he do? He humbled himself and became obedient to the death, even death on a cross. How far are you willing to go to give of yourself to someone else? Jesus gave of himself and went to the cross. This is our example. This is what it means to do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourself, to not look at your own interests, but at those of others. This is what it means. What Jesus did is our example. And this is to be our attitude. And if we all had this attitude, what would our community be? What would Genesis look like if all of us had the attitude of Christ and gave of ourselves selflessly? But I know what you're thinking, or at least maybe you're thinking this, because this is what I think. But if I do this, they're going to take advantage of me. If I give of myself like a servant, they're going to use it. And then I'll be left with nothing. Does anyone else think that way besides me? That's where I go. It's like, but what if I do that and they don't return and, and then I'm you know, left? Well, remember, giving or thinking of others as more important than ourselves doesn't mean you give them everything they want. And again, I use the illustration of kids. You don't give your kids everything you, they want because if you did that, you would destroy them. But you do want to serve them to make them better people. And so our service is to elevate people, but it is selfless. And it does cost. It costs our time. It, it costs our energy. It may cost our finances. It may cost our peace of mind. It will definitely cost you sleep. Because you bear these things. And it drives you to pray. And it drives you to care for these people and the things that they're going through. And that's what Christ did for us. And, and he goes on and he tells us in verses 9 through 11, the, the reward. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him a name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus said that those who humble themselves will be exalted. And we have to trust that God is going to bring this about because we want to see it now. I want to see the exaltation now and you can't. That's esteeming yourself too high. You have to humble yourself and trust that God will exalt you in the right time, in his time. God is going to see these things through. But you see, what Jesus has done for us has given us the example. He humbled himself and he was glorified. He was risen again from the dead. He is seated at the right hand of God the Father. All power has been given to him. And what did he do? He became a servant. He humbled himself, and if you follow in his, example, in his footsteps, God is going to do the same with us. He is going to exalt us in due time. It's curious in this verse because this is a quotation from Isaiah, and as he quotes Isaiah here, it is something that was used towards God specifically, but now it is being used towards Jesus. In Isaiah 45, verses 22 and 23, it says, Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn, my mouth has uttered in all integrity a word that will not be revoked. Before me every knee will bow, by me every tongue will swear. So God said this himself in Isaiah and now it's being applied to Jesus. Do you see what's happening God, man, who humbled himself and died, is now exalted, and we see his true nature. It is God himself. And this is something that when the Jehovah's Witnesses come to your door and they say, well, no, Jesus is less than, we'll say, how come this ascribes what was said of God in Isaiah now to Jesus? Because even in their own new interlinear translation, when they say, how do you describe what is to be divine and what is not to be? You take from the Old Testament, and if it was divine in the Old Testament, then it is divine in the New Testament. But here it's being used about Jesus. He's God, but he humbled himself, and now we see who he really is. And he's exalted. And so that's 
our goal. And so Paul tells us what Jesus did. He gives us the attitude, the mind of Christ that we're supposed to imitate. And then he goes on and he tells us that from Jesus' example, if we will take this example, we could move forward in this way. In verse 12 he says, Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. Now there's a scripture for you. Work out your own salvation, for it is God who is working within you. Well, which is it? It's both. You see, Paul isn't worried about, well, is this my work or is it God's work? It is both your responsibility and God's ability. Your responsibility is to work out what is taking place in your own heart, and then God is able to do what you cannot do. But you have to do your part so that God can fulfill his part. <coughs> and working out our own salvation is doing just what he said here. It is having this attitude of Christ. That's what it means to work out your salvation. It doesn't mean that in order to be saved, you have to do good works. He's not talking about that. He's talking about the fact that you are now saved and belong to him. Allow this attitude of who Christ is to now be something that is a part of you. Allow this mind of Christ to be in you. Work that out. Help that to become a reality. Because you guys, Christianity doesn't mean a thing if it is not a living work within our lives. It doesn't matter what you know. It doesn't matter what you do. It matters who you are and if God is in you. The Pharisees read more than you and I do. The Pharisees did more than you and I did. They gave tithes, they gave to this, they did this. They had it down, but they were not a part of the kingdom of God. Do you understand that you can get it wrong and be doing the right kind of things? What is necessary? You need to work your salvation out. Have the attitude of Christ that surrenders, that is humbled, and thinks others more important, that is something the Pharisees didn't do. That is the example that Jesus gave us. And so working out your salvation means having this attitude of Christ. It doesn't mean doing the things. But we get so caught up on the things. And we lose the attitude. And we have to have this attitude that Christ had. And he says, for it is God works in you to will and act according to his good purpose. Do everything without complaining or arguing. Shall I read that again? Do everything without complaining or arguing. You guys, I am so convicted just in reading these things. Because I complain too much. And I argue too much. And I, why do I complain? Why do I argue? Because I think too much of myself. That's why. Why do you complain? Because you think someone's mistreating you. You think someone should do things your way. You think you have the right way. Why do you argue? Because you think you're right. You know, if you think you're always right, the odds are that you're not. Just the reality. And so you have to kind of get this attitude out of your mind that someone has to conform to you. And again, this is something that we all get challenged in. I get challenged a lot in, in just how I think and, and being able to be receptive that I, my way isn't the only way. People have a voice that you need to listen to and, and be receptive to. And so do everything without complaining. And everything means everything. That means when you go to work. That means when you're home. That means when you're at the grocery store. That means when you're working on your car. I don't know how to do that sometimes. I mean, man, I, I lose my salvation when I work on automobiles. I'm telling you, I just, I, I, how do I do this without complaining? I, I, my wife can verify that. She's seen it happen. Uh, so, verse 15, we'll move on. So, that you may become blameless and pure children of God without fault in a crooked and depraved generation in which you shine like stars in the universe 
as you hold out, and that word hold out means to hold on to the word of life in order that I may boast on that day of Christ that I did not run or labor for nothing. What a picture. Why, why do we have to do this without complaining, without arguing, so that we could be blameless and pure children of God without fault in this crooked world? So that we could shine like stars in the universe. Jesus said, you are the light of the world, a city that's hit on, set on a hill that cannot be hidden. Do you realize who you are? You're stars in the universe, but you can't be if you're complaining and arguing. You can't be if you're thinking too much of yourself. You can't be if you don't have the attitude of Christ. You will forfeit who you are. And so don't complain. Don't argue so that you can be faultless, pure children of God and shine like stars in this crooked and depraved generation in which you shine like stars as you hold on to the word of life. I don't know how to live this life without holding on to the words that Christ has given us. I don't know how to live this life without holding on to Jesus. I don't know how to live this life without the scriptures giving me guidance and direction. I cannot live this life without holding on tenaciously to him. I cannot do it. I am reminded time and time again, and every time I read, I'm convicted and I'm pierced and I see what I'm supposed to be and I see what I'm not yet. And it moves me to want to be who Christ has called me to be. I want to be that shining star in this crooked world. I want to be a light that people will see Jesus within me. I want to be like Jesus. I only know that when I see who he is and I only see who he is as I spend time and I look at the scriptures and I spend time and, and remember what he's done as I, I am spending time and just communing with him and, and speaking to him. If I don't hold on to that, I will not have this. I, I will fall away. I will give in to my complaining. I will give in to my arguing. I will give in to my self-serving ways if I don't continue. In verse 16, he says, as you hold on to the word of life in order that I may boast on that day of Christ that I did not run or labor for nothing. But even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice of serving coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. So you too be glad and rejoice with me. And now Paul moves on to his part, how he is being poured out. He is not thinking of himself. He is thinking of them. Do you see this attitude that was in Christ who gave himself is now being evidenced in Paul. I am being poured out, but it's okay. I'm doing it for you and I'm glad and rejoice with all of you. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. And so we see this attitude that was in Jesus is now being reflected in Paul. And it goes on in verse 19. We see it also in Timothy. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, that I also may be cheered when I receive news about you. I have no one else like him who takes genuine interest in your welfare. In other words, I've got no one like this guy. This guy is genuine. He really cares about you for everyone looks out for his own interest and not those of Jesus Christ. Do you see what he's saying? What were we told before? Don't think about your own interests, but think about the interests of others. I don't have anyone like Timothy who doesn't think about their own interest. Verse 22, he says, but you know that Timothy has proved himself because as a son with his father, he has served with me in the work of the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him as soon as I see how things go with me. And I am confident in the Lord that I myself will come soon. In other words, Timothy was showing the same attitude that Jesus had. He wasn't thinking about himself. He was actually concerned with them. And so Paul was pouring himself out. Timothy wasn't concerned about himself. We see two examples of what Paul left us in, verse, in verses 3 and 4. And he goes on in verse 25. But I think it is necessary to send back to you Epaphroditus, my brother, fellow worker and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger, 
whom you sent to take care of my needs. For he longs for all of you and is distressed because you heard he was ill. He's distressed because they found out he was sick. I get distressed because you don't know I'm sick. I want you to know that I'm sick. Epaphrodite was distressed because you heard that he's sick. Why? Because he didn't want you to worry about him. Do you see the attitude? Do you see where he was coming from? Verse 27, it says, Indeed, he was ill and almost died, but God had mercy on him and not on him, but also on me, to spare me sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore, I am all the more eager to send him, so that when you see him again, you may be glad and I may have less anxiety. Welcome him in the Lord with great joy and honor men like him because he almost died for the work of Christ, risking his life to make up for the help you could not give me. He almost died for the work of Christ. He considered others more than he considered himself. He gave of himself to the point where he almost died. And this is another example of what it means to have the attitude of Christ. And you see, people like this are the people who change the world. If we could have this attitude, we would change our society around us. We would change our community. We would change our families. We would change our workplaces if we had the attitude of Christ. And we're not selfish. And we're not complaining. And we're not arguing. And we did not have this you owe me mentality. But had the mentality of, I'm here to serve you. I'm here to help you to be better. I'm here to make you more important than me. If we had this attitude then we would have the effect these men have had. The effect that Paul had, the effect that Timothy had, the effect that Epaphroditus had, which are all imitating who Jesus was. Which is what we are supposed to do, which is who we are supposed to be, which is what this whole chapter has been about, is imitating Christ's humility. Because though he were God, he made himself nothing. Whoever you are, make yourself nothing and trust that God will exalt you at the right time. Any questions on this chapter? I wasn't sure I was going to try and go through the whole thing, but I thought I, I would rather go through the whole thing because I see it all tied together. I think Paul was giving the example in Jesus, in himself, in Timothy, and in Epaphroditus that he talks about. And so I wanted to try and encapsulate that together. Any questions on any of the verses? Anything stand out to you that were in any of the verses? Anyone convicted by this chapter? <laughs> You know, as we see what God wants us to be, and we know where we really are, and that it's not where we should be, let it motivate you and not hinder you. In other words, don't become so overwhelmed with what you're not that you paralyze yourself into what God wants you to be. Jesus emptied himself, died for you so that you could be what he's calling you and me to be. That, that's what it means to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Wrestle this out in your life. Because God's will is to do something good in you. That's his good pleasure. He's created you for these good works. And so you need to work out your part. You need to wrestle with your pride. You need to wrestle with your omi mentality. You need to wrestle with those things that keep you from moving forward in humility and lifting others better than yourself. 
That's what we need to wrestle with. That's, that's how we're going to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Because if God did this, who am I not to? You get the idea of fear and trembling? If God would be willing to become nothing, who am I to think I'm something? It should cause us serious concern. And it should open our eyes. Well, let's pray. Father, when I, I go through this scripture, I am so challenged. I'm so convicted. I, I see so much of who you are and who I'm not. But I'm also so encouraged, God, because you have once again reminded me of what you desire for me to be. And Lord, though I'm not to have selfish ambition, Lord, I am ambitious to be like you, Jesus. I do desire to see your work take place. And I, I do want to work out my salvation with fear and trembling, knowing that it's you who's at work within me. That the God who created heaven and earth is at work within me, desiring to make me like Jesus. And Lord, even as we see these examples in Paul and Timothy and Epaphroditus, Lord, we... we want to be an example as well. And so we ask for your continual conviction. Lord, I, I pray that each of us would have this humility of mind. God, if we would not think that anyone owes us, but would give of ourselves, boy, how could, how could that just really flourish who we are? Lord, even as you said, people will know that we're your disciples because we love one another. And this is love, giving of ourselves and not thinking of what we can get in return. So help us, God, to do this. It's beyond our ability. We need your guidance. We need your strength. We depend upon you. We ask that you would give us this attitude that was in Jesus. Father, so that we can honor you with our lives. And we do ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.